Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to a special bonus edition of Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hi, guys. On today's bonus episode, we're going to talk about, you guessed it, the coronavirus, just like everyone else, but we're going to approach it in a completely different way. However, before we sanitize everything in the office, I think we should go ahead and check in. So take us there. (laughs) Let me finish washing my hands. Yeah. Um, So we will start today's episode, like all of the others, Outbreak Notwithstanding, with a check-in round question, which is, what have you done or not done in reaction to the news about coronavirus? Aaron? So I think my wife and I have just been waiting for an excuse to get a little preppy. And so this has definitely been a good impetus to just like check in with that. Luckily, our never ending kitchen remodel project just finished like two weeks before the news that this was happening. So we kind of moved in quickly and got organized. And what have I done or not done? I mean, mainly, you know, stockpiling a lot of the basics, uh, just trying to be a little bit, um, you know, smart about it, but not overdoing it. And then uh, really canceling travel. I mean, we've we've mm-hmm. talked about this at the ready. We'll talk about it more in this episode. But I have not traveled for a couple of weeks and I have a couple more weeks that it doesn't look like there's going to be much. And I have a big trip to Europe that might get canceled. So there's mm-hmm. a lot going on. What about you? Yeah, uh, our prep was mostly sparked by a dinner I had in your new beautiful kitchen with you and Britt, <laughs> where you scared the living shit out of me. And then I started sending <laughs> the articles that you guys were walking me through uh, to my friends and loved ones. Um, look, Ed has a tendency toward prep. He is more of he is more prep biased than I am to begin with. So he was all over this. That being said, I think we've taken a pretty like clear-eyed and cool-headed approach so far. The only big thing that we did, uh, which honestly we've been meaning to do anyway, is we did buy a chest freezer for our lake house. Um, We live, the house is in a really remote area and we have wanted one because we tend to make big batches of things anyway. And uh, it's, we're not close to a grocery store. So we just got that done um, and are, you know, going to be stocking it over the next bunch of weeks so that if we are quarantined or if our movement is restricted, we can go up there and live and hang out. Um, that house was not previously sort of stocked to do that for more than like a weekend. Uh, <laughs> I so yeah, it. I would say that's that's probably the biggest thing. I love it. I uh, I talked Brit out of an additional deep freezer. I was like, let's just take it, take a knee. Best Buy still open. Like, right. we, let's like, let's get there when we get there. Um, okay. So today's topic is 
what does the coronavirus situation have to teach us about org design? We want to mm-hmm. come at it from that org design angle. And I want to start by pointing out to all those that are listening that we are not physicians. We are not epidemiologists. We do not study these things for a living. We are org nerds, two org nerds. And so this episode does not contain medical advice. Our remarks today are going to focus exclusively on the organizational context here, and your mileage may vary. So please consult your doctor, yada, yada, yada. Disclosure over. Good legal. Um, yeah, that's my disclaimer. Uh, but um, but then from there, I really just want to say, like, why are we talking about this? What was the impetus for doing a special episode dedicated to this thing that everybody's already talking about too much? We are talking about this because of the number of conversations that I've been in in the last two weeks with people in different client systems and in our own company who don't know what the fuck is going on and don't know what to do about it. <laughs> right. And those conversations have been swirling and unproductive and frustrating. And if anything, I think have created more anxiety and tension and no resolution of any kind. And as I started to think about this through an org design lens, I was like, there are ways of working that can help us in complexity and uncertainty. So let's talk about those (laughs) a little bit. I love that. And in some ways it has been a great, uh, object lesson in what real rich complexity actually looks and feels like when you're like is it going to get worse is it going to get better when would I do x when would I do y and when you feel like you just really aren't sure then you're actually confronting like legit complexity that you can you can start to settle into so I do think this is a great lesson in what that looks like and in many ways I think a lot of our markets and businesses and products and customers are just as complex but we just don't admit it Right. We're not, the consequences aren't quite as high and it allows us to put this patina of certainty and prediction and control on top of things that are actually very similar in the way they yeah. spread, in the way they grow and shrink, in the way decisions are made. So it's kind of a neat uh, a neat example of that. And it's also, you know, in many ways, a tragic example of that. I mean, you know, this is real consequence stuff. Real people are getting hurt and are going to get hurt. And so if the best thing we can do is at least think about it better and act better in service of navigating that complexity, I think that's that's time well spent. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, cool. So let's talk about how we make decisions when there's no perfect decision to make in complexity, <laughs> uh, which is why these circular conversations happen, right? And the first thing that I would point to is the data question. So... In the conversations that I've been part of, mostly that I've been observing as I watch people try to wrestle with what to do for their own company, their own employees, their own system, their own team, whatever, what I see is a version of this conversation. I read this CDC report this morning (laughs) that said X. Then someone else goes like, well, my brother is a doctor and he said, why? And then Mm -hmm. someone else goes, here's what they're doing in Italy. And then someone else goes, did you see the tweet from our dickhead president this morning? Mm -hmm. And like on and on and on and on we go. And all of that data is not created equal. And we're not looking at any of it with a critical lens. And we're often also not looking at it like over time consistently. Yeah. So my first question is for us to wrestle with a little bit is how does a team decide what data it is going to use to both create an initial decision and then steer that decision over time? This is so nuanced, right? Because on the one hand, we can talk about 
how to choose data sources, right? So do you go to experts? What is the value of an expert in complexity? When and how and where does that matter? Mm -hmm. Do you go to, you know, the sensors in the system that are people out at the edge and what they're seeing and observing? What are the incentives of the different people and what they're saying, right? So like none of the agencies or individuals you're hearing from are incentive free. Mm -hmm. Um, So everybody has different things that are coloring or shaping what they have to offer. I think the big takeaway for me in terms of complexity consciousness is go where the data is rich, where it's deeper, where there's more data points, where there's more evidence, where there's more information. And if there's, you know, if the expertise is valid, if it's relevant, then go where that expertise is. But also, you know, go to many sources, like Mm -hmm. go to diverse information sources. If you just look at what is the take of the CDC? That's a good take. That's an expert take. But it's only one perspective on a global phenomenon. And so what are the other agencies saying? What are other people saying? What are other um, perspectives that you want to take and mix in? And then you can roll your own kind of sense-making device around all that, right? Because you don't have to weigh everything equally. But I do think the first thing here is like, go get data that you trust, whether that be your friend who's a doctor or whether that be the CDC or whether that be the data out of Italy, go to data you actually trust and for good reason from, you know, from seeing over time that it works and then and then mix that up into a sense of what's really going on that is, you know, that is a sort of informed perspective. And when you're looking at that data, look at it as the team who feels they have a decision to make. So use data the same way that we use competitor data or financial data to steer our decisions and to sense make as a group, not just have everybody bring disparate points that they're using to back up their argument. And this is no different than how we would advise a team to make an investment decision around an initiative that they wanted to fund. It's like, don't have everybody just go collect their own research and come and argue about it, decide what body of data you're going to look at as a group to have healthy, informed discussion and make a working agreement around that. Yeah. And maybe don't even have a strong point of view going into these kinds of sense-making discussions. Like, I think if you're going in to argue your point, you may have already lost in complexity, right? right? Because the job here is like, how do we integrate a bunch of perspectives and see where the edges and tail cases and different, you know, who's the 10th man and all that, like that plays out in these conversations. I also think it's really important to delineate, and maybe we'll get into this later, but delineate between the decisions that are our decisions Mm -hmm. and the decisions that are each of ours as individuals, Mm -hmm. right? Like there are things that like I'm not going to make a decision for you about what you stock in your pantry this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, that's your decision. But but there are other things we do have to decide together. Like, are we going to travel to that client? Are we mm-hmm. going to go to that conference? Those sorts of things. So I think that delineation is also important before we get into some yelling match. Yeah. So besides data, another piece that I've recommended to clients recently that I think is worth doing in a lot of situations, but particularly now, is some scenario planning. So you're good at scenario planning. How do you do it well? And uh, what should be considered? And how might uh, someone listening to this think about doing this work in the face of this uh, very scary mess that we're in? Well, I think doing scenario planning well, I mean, I would not consider myself an expert on this, but I think doing it well is about first of all, establishing why we're doing it. And Mm -hmm. often it's very easy for people that are used to predict and control management to do scenario planning to try to be right. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Like, let's predict what's going to happen and what's most likely, and let's be sure that we have a plan for that. I don't think that's what is most useful uh, about scenario planning. I think what's useful about it is saying, what are all the blind spots? What are all the ways things could go? Including, you know, sure, certainly the most likely scenario, the best case scenario, the worst case scenario, but also like trying to find those black swans, those edge cases, those things that you won't see, the unknown unknowns. Like if you really get a big, broad group together and you really dig hard for what might occur with different prompts, I think you can turn up a lot of really interesting outcomes, mm-hmm. things that you wouldn't expect. And from that, then you can you can start to play out the work of, all right, well, if this, then that. So if it becomes you know such that we can't go to the office at all, what would we do for continuity of business then? If it became, you know, the case that a certain number of us were sick or a certain number of us were well or what, ha- like, how would we play with that? And then what are all the edge cases that could affect our ability to do that, right? So for the ready, for example, maybe we're fine because we're already a remote company, so we don't have a lot of questions or answers to deal with there. Maybe the work that we do can even be delivered remotely. And so we don't have any scenario planning to worry about there. But what about if Zoom goes down because of overuse? Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. That's scenario planning that we probably wouldn't be prepared for if we didn't do an activity like this where it's like all of our boxes are checked except, uh uh-oh, the server at Zoom is on fire and now we can't deliver services to clients at all. And that's Mm -hmm. actually, I mean, in the the range of possible things that could happen, that's a pretty mild one, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things to think about. So I think you blow those out and then you play the game of like, if this, then that. What if, you know, if that occurred, what would our move be? And the point is to be ready so that whenever one of those things occurs, it doesn't feel like this novel thing. It's like, oh, I've seen that before. Right. And now we have a little bit more fluidity there. But what do, you, what do you think? What's your reaction to that? My add to the scenario planning thought is there are lots of different templates and methodologies for doing scenario planning. The two elements of it that I think are particularly useful in this context are delineating assumptions and delineating Mm -hmm. risks. Mm. Because in the circular conversations that I've been part of, there's a lot that is stated as fact or as truth that is actually opinion or assumption. And there's nothing wrong with getting that information out on the table, but let's label it correctly. Let's label it as an assumption or let's label the worst case situation as a risk rather than a foregone conclusion. I think using using a framework or a rubric of some kind doing scenario planning just to clarify our thinking around what might be versus what we're assuming might be versus what we're afraid might be. Those are useful constructs in a situation like this that can be a bit fraught emotionally and also, um, you know, we can't really get to like the right answer. I love that. And you see that even in regular course of business, right? Of course. This notion of like, we're not great at clarifying assumptions. We're not great at testing those assumptions. We love to to state things as fact. And in many ways, as as you know, leaders, as founders, as as managers, you're brought up to speak confidently. Mm-hmm. to be certain, to be calming, to be like, we're all going to be okay. This is the answer. This is the way. And so I think it is super counterintuitive, especially in a crisis, to be like, yeah, these are the assumptions. Like, mm-hmm. these are the unknowns. These are the things that, these are the risks. And and be more open and more humble to that. Yeah. And it gives us an opportunity to not have to agree. Like, you and I don't right. have to hold the same assumptions. It's worth cataloging all of the assumptions that are kicking around inside this team yeah. so that we have that just stated somewhere as we think about what are three likely scenarios to play out over the next six weeks, six months, or a year. 
So we do some scenario planning and then you started to allude to it, but maybe talk a little bit about how you could extract some if thens and or even overs out of doing that work that could really help an organization. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the if thens and the what ifs are about figuring out what we might do, but there's also questions of trade-offs and priorities, right? So in order to decide what we want to do and what we want to want to take action on, we have to decide what our priorities are, right? Are we willing to take a risk in order to stay open? Are we willing to do X in order to get Y? And so that's what I think things like even overs can do well is let's prioritize. All right. Given the situation, what X will we prioritize even over Y? So maybe Y is growth. We want to grow, but in this moment, in this situation, we're willing to prioritize stability over growth. Like we just mm-hmm. want to be able to manage that. Or we want to prioritize our health, or we want to prioritize our communities, or what have you. I think that um, that activity of just saying, like, what do we really hold sacred in this moment that we want to drive the decision making around is critical because there's no right answer in complexity, right? There's not going to be something where it's like they did exactly what they should have done because again, yeah. it could go left, it could go right. It's a droplet of water on the back of a hand. Like you, when nobody knows in the world, no math model is going to tell you exactly what's going to happen next. And so all you can do is zoom in on your priorities, your values. And if you clarify those, no matter which way things roll, you'll be able to, I think, slice and dice these decision moments more effectively. And ultimately, I think this all drills down to what is safe to try. And Mm -hmm. that term that we use so much in business and in regular operations that feels very, um, you know, kind of fun and helpful in this context is deadly serious, Mm -hmm. right? Like literally what is safe to try for our for our livelihood, for our lives, for our communities and families that that brings a whole new meaning to it. And I think it raises the bar on how good we have to be at evaluating what is safe to try. Mm hmm. So let's take those if then and even over concepts and just drill down into a couple really crisp examples for folks. So take the the if then scenario. What's an example of something that you can imagine a team using to guide decisioning going into, you know, a future state here? So the biggest one I'm hearing kicked around is around remote work. And yep. an easy example of that would be pick the level of altitude at which you want to make your if statement. So Something like if there is a confirmed case of the virus in our local office or our local city or our local county, you guys have to pick, then we will work remotely for X number of weeks before reevaluating. That would be an example of an if-then kind of statement that we could try on. What I like about that is it's very clear what the trigger is. So a good, you know, a good if then and a good scenario plan is like, if this happens, we all can agree it happened, right? So there's no doubt about that, or at least very limited doubt about that. And the other thing I like about that one is actually the reevaluation part, Mm -hmm. because we want fast feedback loops in situations like this, whether it's, you know, marketing the hot new product or whether it's dealing with a pathogen, the faster and tighter those feedback loops are, the more quickly we get a chance to kind of steer, the better. And so I love the idea of like, we're going to take action that'll be immediate and decisive. And we're not just going to sit on that and continue. We're going to check back in at some point and, and you know, do new sense making again around this around mm-hmm. this uh, scenario. And what about some even overs? What comes to mind? Yeah, so many good ones, right? So the thing about an even over is that both sides of it should be good things so that it should work in either direction and it really just matters on the context. So one that comes to mind for me is containment even over community. Community's great. Love it. Love that feeling at work of we're all together. Kumbaya. I also am a pretty big fan of containing 
pandemics. So Mm -hmm. they're both fine. In this situation, though, maybe what we're going to say is, yeah, for four weeks, for eight weeks to slow the progress of this, we're going to prioritize containment even over community. And that means not as many people go to work as we've seen at, you know, places like JP Morgan or Facebook or, you know, Amazon HQ, or maybe none of us go to work. Maybe we go fully remote as we're seeing certain certain clients and organizations do. But the idea is basically saying we know the trade-off and the trade-off is that sense of connection, that serendipity, that togetherness and, you know, hashtag worth it. Like Mm -hmm. that's, we're going to, we're going to play that out for a while. So I like that one. The other one I like is, you know, remote work, even over impact or even maybe remote work, even over, um, you know, our norms and our comforts and Mm -hmm. our, you know, or remote work, even over, um, security, right? Like there's all these trade-offs when we go to a fully remote system. There's actually a lot of benefits by the way. And there's a lot of companies and writing about that out there if anybody's curious. But um, but there are real trade-offs, right? Like maybe we are a little bit less secure. Maybe we do have a little bit, you know, lower impact, lower uh, fidelity of communication. But it's going to be, you know, it's going to benefit us because we'll be able to be home and we'll mm-hmm. be able to be safe. And so mm-hmm. I think that's that's another good one. So we've talked a lot about ways of working in complexity or that are complexity conscious. But let's talk about the other side of the coin, which is people positivity. In a moment of uncertainty that is also potentially a little scary, uh, it's very easy for leaders and organizations to revert to mistrust and Mm -hmm. sort of lowest common denominator thinking about their people. And I've heard a bunch of this from a bunch of corners in the last few weeks. So, um, so what should we do about that? Well, I think it's very prevalent and and unfortunately it's happening, you know, not just in the organizational context, but everywhere. It's funny you mention it because I had this tweet across my desk this morning. This woman, Michelle Chai, was saying, uh, this is going to sound kind of mad, but this week, please consider making your weekly takeout a Chinese takeaway. My family's businesses have all been hugely impacted by the coronavirus panic. Mm. There are people literally sitting at home in the U.S. being like, I'm not going to order Chinese because the disease came from Wuhan. That's mental. That's and that's crazy. just a great example of like how quickly and how easily we get xenophobic and we get crazy about people. Mm-hmm. So I do think that you know, one of the best phrases that I've picked up from other practitioners in our space is act as if. Mm -hmm. And I think when we go remote, when we go to new ways of working suddenly like this, when we go into a very unknown space, we have to, have to, have to act as if everybody's a good actor. Everybody has the best intentions. Everybody's going to show up and play their best game and, and really just live into that for a while, even if the behavior we see doesn't match that expectation. I think yeah. we have to just give the benefit of the doubt for a good long while while we settle into this before we draw any conclusions about the nature of people or individuals. And part of this is also self-control, right? So when we're leaders in uncertainty and things feel overwhelming, it is very easy to begin to want to lock something down. And -hmm. because we can't create the perfect policy or the perfect plan to deal with this virus that we weren't expecting, now all of a sudden we're saying like, well, if people work from home, how do we know that they're going to work eight hours a day? Yeah, how are we going to crack the whip? Let's not conflate those two things, that because Mm -hmm. we feel out of control, the move is to exert control where we can. Because... Uh, one is not actually related to the other one. Let's assume that because we have an employee body that is 90 plus percent good productive actors, that those good productive actors will still act productively and with good intentions at their desks, in their houses, and that our scrutiny is not the only thing that's keeping the engine running. 
And rest assured that, you know, all the research and the data and and the cases that we've seen and been a part of at the ready is going to back up the idea that if we move into these new ways of working, if we work remotely, if we give people more choice about where and what and how they do what they do, it's going to work. Like, mm-hmm. it's okay. And, and in many ways, like, I think we're going to see a lot of teams and cultures not want to go back. Yeah. Like, there's going to be this big, in a year, there's going to be a, a this big exodus of people that are like, yeah, I don't really want to go back to the HQ. Like, we're crushing it now. And I'm able to still see my kids. And like, this is just a better way of working. And the trade-offs, we can mitigate with being together sometimes instead of all the time. Um, so I'm I'm very excited and eager to see some of those knock-on effects or second-order effects of people stepping into this very uncertain space. And a lot of the tools and practices that we teach and use when we do transformation work are about creating adaptivity in systems. So sometimes we don't connect between that principle and the practice, but when we're asking teams to use video rather than, say, just a conference call. Or we're asking them to visualize their work and make it transparent in a Trello board rather than siloing it in email. Or we're asking people to communicate through chat rather than waiting for like large status meetings or something like that. <laughs> I don't know that the connection is always made to adaptivity in a system. But look at a situation like this. And my clients who have started using all three of those things are much more prepared for a remote work scenario than they would have been had they not used those things. And the same can be said of a lot of other kinds of black swan events, like using those same tools would also have made them more prepared for a giant reorg or a competitive disruptor or a natural disaster, or a whole variety of other things that they couldn't have predicted. And it's so critical in this moment to dial into those, you know, four principles that we're always yakking about, because those are the principles behind a lot of those tools and practices. And those are the principles that will uniformly help you manage something like this and get you to that better place. And those are autonomy, right? Like more agency, more ability to make decisions at the edge, transparency, more data flow, more information flow, more symmetry of data, decentralization, right? We don't want to be centralized when we can have a critical failure that blows everything apart. And so that's centralization of people, centralization of, of stuff, of responsibility, mm-hmm. et cetera. And then consent, which I think is really connected to to autonomy, but it's the other side of the coin, which is you know, let's not do things to people without their consent, right? If we want people to work from home, let's co-design that policy together. If we want people to use a different tool, let's at least have a moment where we all get to weigh in a little bit about what tool that is and why. And just take the time to, to do it with some care and some consent. But if you live even two of those or three of those, um, you're going to see huge gains in terms of that uh, that adaptability because those are emerging out of that pattern. They're emerging out of that pattern of if things are going to be moving under your feet and you need faster feedback loops and the ability to steer more frequently, those things make you stronger. They make you better at doing that. Though, like mm-hmm. that's the sports car that you want on the track. And I always am uh, blown away when I leave a big event, a big sporting event or a big you know concert or something, which obviously <laughs> they're all canceled, so... None of that's happening right now. But you leave one of those and you watch how people fan out and go where they need to go and get and get it done the way they need to get it done. And then you compare that to, you know, a game of lemmings where everybody just walks off the cliff. And it's mm-hmm. like, we need that decentralization. We need that agency. We need that ability to just say, like, teams, 
we're up against a big one here. We have to figure out how to do what we've done this way with these tools and these supplies. And now we need to do it with our hands behind our back, jumping on one foot on a pogo stick, using these remote tools we've never used before. And instead of trying to centralize that and create like the perfect playbook and the perfect answer and the perfect training, I think there's something to be said for just like, hey, each team has a mission, has a purpose. They need to go figure it out. And if there are things that we need to do together, then let's convene those moments and have those discussions. But there's a lot that we can do alone and with our teams. That leads so well into the last bit that we wanted to cover here, which is the idea of standards and defaults, or in Aaron's parlance, enabling constraints and governing constraints. You can all choose your own adventure on that one. (laughs) Technically Dave Snowden's parlance, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What we're seeing in this moment is a desire to create rigorous and comprehensive standards because that's what feels safe. And that's what feels responsible too. I understand the impulse. That's not always helpful or necessary. So let's talk a little bit about the difference between those things and how teams or organizations can think about them in this moment. The key difference here for me, and we've talked about this briefly on the show before, is about risk. Again, it's about that safe to try bar, that waterline. You know, is it is it a hole below the waterline or above the waterline on the boat? I think standards are great when we're saying, look, we can't have it any other way, right? We all need to agree on what tool we're going to chat on. We all need to agree on a security protocol. Mm -hmm. We all need to log in to our email server. We can't just have that be open. Like there's stuff that we're going to do that has to be standardized. And I think if the benefit there is that, you know, we get to do it all the same way and we avoid the risk of it going catastrophically wrong, that's great. I think in so many of these other cases, though, the default is just a way to say, hey, here's a good practice, not a best practice, but here's a good practice that we know serves us well, that we have that we're informed or we have some data that tells us is a good option for us. And if you're not sure, do this. In some ways, that's the article I sent you. I, when we were talking about coronavirus originally, I was like, mm-hmm. here's a guy who's written a good article that's like, if you don't know much, here's 10 things you should know. You mm-hmm. know, and it's like, it's not over the top. It's not overboard. It's not over prescriptive, but it's like, these are probably good ideas. And Mm -hmm. I think the same thing about defaults. You know, if we're going to set certain hours of the day that we work, certain response times in our remote tools, certain agreements about how we use or don't use video, how we show up, you know, what what decision-making protocol we want to use. I think those are all great things where we can just say, this is the way we do it if we don't have a better idea. Mm -hmm. And if we have a better idea, it's, you know, to each team their own. And and the only trade-off, as I always rattle on about, the only trade-off for uh, branching away from a default is, What'd you learn? <laughs> How'd that go? You know, yeah. and if it, made, if it made it better, then we'd love to hear about it. And if it didn't, then, you know, go back to the default next time. And in this moment, defaults serve two purposes. One is they are a service to the teams that just haven't figured it out yet. And so in the absence of knowing what the fuck to do, which none of us do, uh, it's really helpful if somebody says like, well, we talked about it and looked at data and here's what we're going to try if that serves Mm -hmm. you. We're not telling you you must because we also might and probably are wrong, but here's a starting point or a template or a draft for you to start from. And the other thing that it does is it allows us to propose something without knowing if it'll be right. So in this moment where, again, creating a monolithic, exhaustive, complete policy that covers remote work and travel and essential personnel (laughs) and tooling and spending and contingency, like what we get stuck in is we can't 
A, figure all of that shit out. B, we're never going to agree on it. C, by the time we kick the policy out the door, it's going to be irrelevant anyway. Yeah. And so right now what we can do is say, as we just did for the ready on Friday, okay, what is the default that would actually serve us right now? The questions swirling around for us are about travel. So we made a default about travel. Anybody is welcome to exempt themselves from that default or iterate on that default. But in the absence of us knowing what to do, we were like, this seems like a people positive thing to say, hey, here's a suggestion that makes sense to us as a group. Yeah. And interestingly, we came to that default through sense making and conversation. Exactly. So it's not like you wrote it or I wrote it on a napkin alone. We had an hour long conversation and kind of beat it up a few different ways. And then we were like, what is everybody craving? What are they needing? And the answer was like, we kind of feel like we need a party line. Mm-hmm. And so we wrote a three sentence party line that was like, hey, for the next X weeks, the ready is not going to travel unless we have to. And if you need to veer from that, that's your call. But like the default that you can go to the market with is, hey, we're, you know, we have a policy right now as a system that we're, we're saying no. Our first mm-hmm. answer is no. Right. <laughs> and, you know, if you want to push back, we can discuss it. But our, our default answer is no. And I think that that is very freeing. I think so too. And when you do work that is enabling as defaults are, then you're not trying to constrain someone's behavior or tell them what they can and cannot do or like try to figure out what, you know, what trips everybody has planned for the next six weeks so we can like triage them all and make sense of it and, you know, make changes where we need to. And and I would say in that line of thinking, in that mindset, you can have as many defaults as serve. So like right, the checklist right. that you sent me, I think is a valuable default for anybody at the ready to use as their default. Like if right. this makes sense to you and you can afford it and you have the time and you have the space, these are great checklists to use. Go for it. Take from it what's useful, ignore what's not. So if we're in the mindset of defaults, not standards or not governance and using governance for when we really need it, like these are the places <laughs> that you are not allowed to fly because we are concerned about the safety of our workforce, then right. I think uh, it sort of skies the limit in terms of what could be useful in this moment. Yeah. And what I think really builds on that idea of of kind of just-in-time delivery is, you know, this connection back to other episodes we've done, like Learn by Doing. You, you know, you don't have to eat the elephant all at once. You mm-hmm. have to just deal with the tension that's present and alive right now. And if the if you have a trip planned for next week, you don't need to create a travel policy for the whole freaking company for the next year. Yep. You need to decide what are we going to do about next week? And maybe a default that lasts a week or two is enough. I think you really just have to be tuned in and you have to be listening for you know to the system for like what's needed now, what's mm-hmm. called for now, and what are we called upon to decide? And then, you know, you make those defaults, you make those agreements, you make those uh, scenarios. And then you live with them for a little bit and you rinse and repeat. And I think what we'll see in the next many months are a lot of teams getting a lot better at living in that tight feedback loop than they've ever been before, Mm -hmm. which is like there's going to be a lot of like, all right, now what? Now what? Now what? Now what? And it feels like an emergency. But in many ways, if you get good at it, that's just what work is. That's what work in complexity looks like. That's true. It's the mantra that I just learned from Tom on Monday's episode, which is what's (laughs) now, what's next? What's, what's now? now? What's next? What's next? It's a. Uh, it could serve us well. I think that is a fantastic uh, little aphorism to draw things to a close on. So I will shut it down now. Uh, Rodney, thanks for the idea and the company on this one, and all the good advice. 
Yeah, we'll we'll get through it. We will. We, we hope. Will. We we persevere. We <laughs> persist. Um, as always, a quick uh, tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. And you can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a review. Uh, share this with a friend. I don't know, take out a billboard in L.A., put our names on it. Um, and uh, as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something and wash your hands. Wash your hands.